home improvements, home renovations, home maintenance, home repairs, and all the other challenges of home ownership. Welcome to the Thumb and Hammer Home Improvement Podcast. Hello and welcome to episode 24 of the Thumb and Hammer Podcast. My name is Doug, and this is the final episode of the podcast for 2017, and it's going to be a little bit shorter than normal. Well, you know, if you follow me on Twitter, then you will know that I usually tweet out articles that I've curated on a variety of topics that I find interesting as someone who enjoys home improvements and architecture and all that sort of stuff. When I come across articles that interest me, I tweet them out for anyone else who may be interested in the same sort of thing. Well, what I want to do in this episode of the podcast is to take a look back at some of the more interesting things that I have come across in the last year. So without further ado, let's get started with tiny houses. Always lots of articles about tiny houses. Yeah, we're still talking about them. And let's face it, they're not going away anytime soon. By their very nature, the concept of tiny houses forces us to consider what is most important. First and foremost, a house is shelter. All the other stuff that we have is unnecessary clutter. When you are limited to a couple hundred feet of living space, then you simply don't have the room for knickknacks and tchotchkes. As George Carlin said, your house is a pile of stuff with a cover on it. A tiny house breeds minimalism. And severing our attachment to things freezes up to actually experience life, or something like that. What makes tiny houses so compelling, if you ask me, is their efficient use of space. Tiny house design elements can translate to any size of house, and we can all learn how to use whatever space we have more creatively and more efficiently. But beyond the lifestyle changes, tiny houses have also been promoted as a solution to a number of problems. People have been building tiny houses to serve as shelters for the homeless, as housing for veterans, and as temporary shelter for victims of natural disasters. Students learn building skills by building tiny houses for their community. This is especially important as there continues to be a skilled trades shortage and a general shortage of construction workers. For students, this is truly hands-on learning, and it benefits the community as well. The biggest news around tiny houses, though, is that the powers that be are finally starting to recognize them. The problem up until now has been that tiny houses are too small to be considered houses. And if they're on wheels, they're more likely to be classified as RVs, which cannot be lived in full time. They've been stuck in this sort of legal purgatory as we try to figure out just how to categorize them. But in 2017, Boise, Idaho, and the state of Oregon both made moves to adopt new building codes that finally recognize these houses. It's at least a step in the right direction. In 2017, there were a number of stories surrounding the housing crisis, or a housing crisis. It depends on your definition and where you are, but there is concern over the lack of affordable housing. These stories originated from 
Wellington, New Zealand, where houses are selling for, quote, stupid amounts. Sweden, London, Australia, and the Canadian cities of Vancouver, Toronto, and Montreal. In Germany, houses are up to 30% overvalued, and so on. There is a fear of another housing bubble like the one that was partially responsible for the Great Recession back in 08 and 09. But generally speaking, first-time home buyers are being shut out of the market simply because houses are becoming too expensive. Now, why is this happening? Builders seem to be focused on building higher-end properties where they can maximize their profits. With that, there's a certain level of gentrification. Smaller, affordable homes are torn down to make way for higher-end properties. So what you have is this double whammy. Affordable houses are disappearing, and there is little or no new construction to replace them. There's also a rise in property values in general. So what was once an affordable house is no longer. Prices are being driven up as properties are snatched up as investments. And sadly, there is the issue of having so many of these properties sit empty. Airbnb gets some of the blame here. Short-term rentals to travelers are more lucrative than long-term leases or sales. So in some cases, it's not like there isn't enough inventory. It's that the inventory is simply not available. Yeah, it's, uh, it's complicated, to say the least. Next up. We are building with wood. A 10-level building in Brisbane will qualify as the world's tallest to be constructed using wood. 45 meters out of 52, or roughly 150 feet, will be timber construction. Meanwhile, in the United States, the Oregon headquarters of the First Tech Credit Union will be the largest wood building in the U.S., measuring 156,000 square feet and five stories high. The framework building in Portland will be 12 stories high. It's the technology of cross-laminated beams that make it possible to build these mid-rise buildings, and there are some advantages to building with wood. Engineered wood acts as a carbon sink, whereas each metric ton of concrete releases 900 kilograms of greenhouse gas emissions. According to the Green Building Council of Australia, cross-laminated timber, or CLT, provides great thermal performance, which means they are efficient to heat and cool and save considerable amounts on utility bills. They did a study on Australia's first timber high-rise, which was completed in 2013. Um, That building was Lend Lease's 10-story Forte building, which is located in Melbourne. Anyway, the study concluded that that building would generate 22% lower global warming emissions over its lifespan than a traditional concrete build. So building with wood is good for the environment. Speaking of the environment and green building, Tesla has started selling solar roofs. No, not solar panels, solar roofs. Unlike ugly solar panels, the Tesla solar roof consists of glass tiles, which look like traditional roofing materials. And these are warranted, they say, for the life of your home or infinity, whichever comes first. (laughs) You gotta love that. 
the power warranty is 30 years. So what you're looking at is a roof that's basically comparable to a high-end asphalt shingle roof. The cost is more than asphalt shingles, but less than tile, metal, or slate. And over its 30 years, the solar roof will more than pay for itself in the energy that it generates. The tiles are available as solar and non-solar, so you can customize your roof to fit your needs. Both tiles look the same from the road. And the tiles have achieved the best ratings for hail, wind, and fire. Whatever you think of global climate change, whether it's real or not real, whether it's some sort of conspiracy, I think we can all agree that this is the direction we need to be going in. Self-sufficiency without relying on the grid. There continues to be concern over the shortage of workers in construction and the trades. Construction has rebounded from the lows of the recession. However, the workers who were forced to leave the industry when it tanked have not returned. And older workers are retiring and fewer people are entering the workforce to replace them. The result? A shortage of construction workers at a time when there is a high demand. There is also a shortage of qualified workers in the trades as baby boomers retire. Part of the problem is the lack of high school shop classes. Another part of the problem stems from the stigma that's associated with blue-collar work. Kids these days apparently don't like getting their hands dirty. As I mentioned before when I was talking about tiny houses, there does seem to be a bit of a return to teaching construction in schools. But we still have a long way to go. One of the more uplifting stories this year came out of the UK. A nursery in Britain has banned plastic toys and given kids power tools instead. Supervised, of course. That is the sort of thing that we need to be doing here, sparking creativity and drive at a young age. But unfortunately, here in North America, we are so litigious that that is unlikely to happen. The maker movement continues to grow. Maker spaces, places where people can go to make stuff, have been popping up all over the place. So now, you don't need a big workshop or a lot of tools. For a membership fee, you get access to equipment and workshop space. And many of these maker spaces also offer instruction to help you increase your skills. So for less than the cost of a cabinet saw, you can get access to a fully equipped workshop for a year. Tool libraries are also gaining in popularity, both in conjunction with these makerspaces and independently. Need a tool? Borrow it. Becoming a maker does not necessitate a huge investment. What is really cool is the collaborative nature of these places. The whole maker movement seems to have taken off, and it feels like there is a genuine sense of community. There was a bit of a shakeup in the tool industry in 2017. In January, Hitachi Koki, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, K-O-K-I. Um, anyway, Hitachi Koki is the power tool units of Hitachi, and that was bought by a U.S. equity firm in January. More recently, Hitachi Koki announced that they were rebranding to Hikoki in 2018. H-I-K-O-K-I. Um, now this is 
good to know because <laughs> you know you're going to see the Hitachi brand disappear from the shelves and see this new unknown Haikoki brand starting to show up. Well, they're the same. Ryobi or Ryobi has been purchased by Kyocera. The acquisition will be completed in January 2018. Quoting Kyocera's website, Kyocera's global operations include a diverse range of products, advanced materials, components, devices, equipment, networks, and services. With this kind of diversity, it's hard to predict what that's going to mean for the future of Ryobi tools. Bosch has sold the skill brand to Chinese tool manufacturer Shervon. Now, Emerson Electric acquired Skill in 1979. Bosch entered into a joint venture with Emerson in 1991, combining their power tool subsidiaries. And in 1996, Bosch took over the complete ownership of Skill. So it's not like Skill has not bounced around before. The biggest sale of the year came in January, when Sears sold off its iconic Craftsman brand to Stanley Black & Decker. It's never a good sign when a company sells off one of its biggest assets, and Sears is looking pretty precarious. In fact, in Canada, Sears has declared bankruptcy and is in the final days of liquidation at the time of this recording. Sears Canada has been around since the 1950s when it started as Simpson Sears, which was a partnership between the American company and Simpsons, which was a Canadian department store chain originating from a store that was opened by Robert Simpson in 1858. So, yeah, there is some history here. And we can all get into the lament of the disappearance of the department store and brick and mortar stores in general. And I can get all nostalgic about the disappearance of the Sears catalog and the Christmas wish book. But life goes on. And life will go on for the Craftsman brand, at least for the foreseeable future. Now, I don't know what you think of Craftsman. Some tool snobs out there are dismissive of the brand, but in my opinion, their stuff is decent. Not necessarily top of the line, but at least respectable. It's definitely a good acquisition for Stanley Black & Decker. Whatever you think of any of this, seeing the Craftsman name live on, at least for now, is reassuring. Now, just to be clear, I am in no way minimizing the loss of jobs, especially at this time of year. 16,000 people are affected. No severance pay, reduced pensions. 16,000 people. Here is hoping that everyone affected is able to land on their feet in 2018. Before I wrap up, I want to share with you one of my favorite articles from 2017. It's something that I've already mentioned earlier in this episode, but I want to read you the full story. It comes from The Sun on October 19th, 2017, written by Rob Pattinson. Nursery that swaps Tots plastic toys for power tools, crowned best in Britain. Dandelion Education has banned plastic toys. Instead, kids make their own and have used drills, sanders, saws, and bricks under adult supervision to build swings, 
a wooden castle, and walls. They play outside for eight hours a day in all weathers, with nursery bosses saying that it boosts their immune system. Owner Haley Room, 44, said, Toys are so closed and give no space for imagination. If a child wants a car, they make it. This helps them think creatively and improves problem solving. Being outdoors, learning comes alive. All of the senses are stimulated. She added, The state system is no longer designed for children's needs, but more for the needs of bureaucrats and spreadsheets. In that system, we're not letting children become what they want to become. We're just teaching them to take exams and fit in a box. The nursery in Marsham, Norfolk, has been rated outstanding by Ofsted and crowned number one by Nursery World magazine. And there will be a link to this article in the show notes. Love it. And with that, I am going to wrap up this episode of the Thumb and Hammer podcast. The website is thumbandhammer.com. Subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. You know the drill. Follow me on Twitter at Thumb and Hammer. Here is wishing you all the best in 2018. Talk to you again in a couple weeks. Cheers. Cheers.